0: All right, everybody, start your engines That's your hymnal out, Psalm 43, Psalm 43 in the hymnal here, the hymn of the week is 421, that is a great hymn because it is so realistic about the human condition and even the struggles that Christians have. So, that's 421. Psalm 43 is the psalm for the week. And we will use the verse for the week from the congregation at prayer, which is Romans 8, 18, as an antiphon before and after the psalm. Okay. Okay. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly people.
1: From a deceitful and unjust man, deliver me.
0: For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Of the oppression of the enemy. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them
1: bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling.
0: Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy.
1: And I will praise you with a lyre, O God,
0: my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me?
1: O God, I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God.
0: Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Psalm 43 is taken from, is the psalm for the week of Utica, sometimes translated, Judge me, but better put, Vindicate me, O God. The intro for this week, Psalm 43. Look at those opening verses, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. If you think of Jesus, those words certainly (coughs) fit. But they also fit in the mouth of the Christian who is subject to the same sorts of things. But look at verse 2. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? The experiences of our lives as Christians, in spite of our best efforts to be faithful to the Lord, to follow his word, to trust in him, to do the right things, still finds us in a position in which we feel like the Canaanite woman who cried out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, and he answered her not a word. So what the psalmist reflects here is the experience that we often have as Christians. You are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? I think this is extremely comforting that you're given that word to pray in the Psalter, and God doesn't smack you down for daring to assert that He has rejected you. You follow what I'm saying? because that's what you're feeling. You husbands would do well to not react in a spirit of self-defense when your wife cries out to you as if you don't understand, you're not supporting her, or you have rejected her, maybe you ought to just hold your tongue and allow her to vent that frustration and be Jesus to her in receiving that and supporting her. Which leads us into all of the Psalms find their significance in Christ. So look at that verse again. You are the God in whom I take refuge. Put those words in Jesus' mouth. Why have you rejected me? Put those words in Jesus' mouth. There's an answer. Because upon him was laid the iniquity of the world. He suffered that rejection so that we might know that no matter how rejected we might feel that we are. For Christ's sake, we are not. Okay, And that's how the psalm resolves. Send out your light and your truth, verse 3. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. I remember that there was a, a choral anthem. We have not sung it here. The senior choir, I'm not sure if it's a little bit above our pay grade or not, but we sang it at Zion, Send out your light and your truth, let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill. See, I remember these from childhood, Bob. Remember those things, and they stay with me. Okay? But do you see, do you see this? The the Psalms are so spot on realistic in their depiction of the human experience for the Christian. For the Christian. And we learn to understand them and pray them rightly through Christ who has put on our shoes. You know, he has entered into our condition. So he bears the rejection so that we might know that we are never rejected. Even though we surely feel like it. Okay? Let us pray. Most merciful God and Father, your son was falsely accused, slandered, and lied about, In every way, by his enemies. Yet he did not defend himself, but entrusted himself to your justice. Vindicate us, O Lord, and plead our cause in a world of ungodliness and wicked attacks upon our good name and reputation. Teach us to commend ourselves to you who judges righteously, and to await upon your deliverance. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we commend to you all of the sick of our congregation. Uh, Sustain Alex, even as he must await yet another delay of his surgery. Grant him your peace and that your will would be done. Bring healing to Elise, suffering from an injured arm. John Paul Biney, critically injured and hospitalized after a fall. Jan Wallen and Shirley Weber recovering from surgery, Dan McMiller in treatment for multiple myeloma, Mark Gretzinger awaiting surgery, Christy Schmidt recovering from a stroke, Aubrey Kruger in mental health treatment, Amy Bruss in therapy following a stroke, Roland Elke, James Loker, Josiah Berenger in treatment for cancer, Nancy Thiele in hospice care. Grant healing according to your will, sustain them with your grace, and grant them your peace and bring peace to Europe, to Ukraine, and Russia. Deliver those who are suffering great oppression. Support your church in reaching out in acts of mercy and compassion. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
2: One, two, and five. Jesus, grant that balm and healing In your holy wounds I find Every hour that I am feeling Pains of body and of mind Should some evil thought within Tempt my treacherous heart to sin show the peril and from sinning keep me from its first beginning should some lost or sharp temptation fascinate my sinful mind draw me to your cross and passion and new courage i shall find or should satan press me hard let me then be on my guard saying christ for me was wounded that the tempter flee confounded oh my god my rock and tower grant that in your death i trust knowing death has lost its power since you crushed it in the dust save your let your agony ever help and comfort me when i die be my protection light and life and resurrection
0: all right matthew chapter 7 The Sermon on the Mount. It is our goal to finish chapter 7 today, which brings the Sermon on the Mount to a conclusion. Because there is no Coffee Break Bible study for the next two weeks. Next week is Holy Week. We have three services on Wednesday. We have three services on Thursday. We have three services on Friday. We have the Easter Vigil at 7.30 on Saturday. We have two services on Easter Sunday. So, come to those. Okay? I could do Coffee Break Bible Study next week, but you don't have the strength. (laughs) Even though I celebrated my 61st birthday uh, on April 5th, I still, I still have the strength, thank you. But I was, uh, I was observing, good morning Connie, um, I am going, my second trip to Lake Country Lutheran, see I've got this fan club over there by the name of Cole Peterson, uh, John Thoney, um, Tim Furking, Jake Musimelli. they just really want me to, to come and uh, you know, talk to the theology class. So they do this on Friday in the Old Testament class. And so the last time I talked was on um, how do you explain the Trinity? And tomorrow's topic is why don't we ordain women? Okay? And so I decided uh, John with the help of his brother Andrew, because they always do things together, as a high school project prepared a nearly 30 minute video called In the Stead of Christ, a scriptural view on the ordination of women. It was a high school project of of John's and we went to the seminary in Fort Wayne and interviewed Uh, Professor John Pless, uh, Dr. David Scare, Uh, in graduate studies from Sweden, uh, Reverend Jacob Appel, uh, the Dean of Theological Studies of the Lutheran Church of Madagascar, as well as me, but we didn't have to go to Fort Wayne to do that interview. So he had a series of questions that was asked all of these professors, and then that was interwoven into this documentary that had a script laid out from beginning to end. Oh, we also interviewed Rosie Adel, who is Associate Director of Deaconess Studies at Fort Wayne. And... uh, There's lots of nice artwork in it because there are all these icons of the apostles and so forth. Have any of you seen it? You saw it. I own a copy. You own a copy, yeah. You have? You've seen it? So, um, but it was made in 2008. And I was um, previewing it in preparation for tomorrow's class because it's been a long time. And uh, I thought it would be inspiring. Well, maybe not. But hopefully for the high schoolers to say, "See, a high school, a high schooler did this," and um, I mean, he had help obviously, but a high schooler did this. Anyway, 2008. How many years ago is that? 14. 14 years ago. I had forgot. I had a beard in 2008, but at that time I wasn't putting highlights in my beard as I am today. I just, I just I just left it I just left it natural, uh, dark dark brown without the highlights. Okay. Why did I bring that up?
1: For the highlights.
0: Oh yes, so I could do I could do, uh, coffee break Bible study next week, but I'd I'd like you to come to the services. Okay. And then the week after that, taking a little bit of R and R up in Door County, the White Lace Inn. So, so we will resume on April the twenty-eighth. And all this information came from Sherry. So I hope it's I hope it's the correct date. Okay. And then as we um, uh, bring. Uh, To conclusion, hopefully today, the Sermon on the Mount, at least for today's study, um, will have opportunity as the Matthew study progresses to reflect back on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I'd like to ask you the question now, so if we have time for it at the end, you can answer it. Uh, What, for you, has been... um, a favorite part of the Sermon on the Mount, a favorite passage, something that has um, been enlightening to you from the Sermon on the Mount study so you 'll have time to think about it now don 't answer that now, think about it, and we 'll continue through this through the study. How many discourses are there in matthew's Gospel? do you remember? There are five discourses of which the Sermon on the Mount is the first and The evangelist and apostle Matthew structures the outline of the book uh, around those five discourses. And as a Jew, he reflects the five books of Moses, the Torah of the Old Testament that was foundational. So these five discourses become foundational for for the catechumen to understand Christian doctrine, the Christian gospel, Christology and the church. So in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that we have emphasized, even as we have talked about the forgiving righteousness of Christ, which is the heart of the gospel, is that the Sermon on the Mount is a Christology and an ecclesiology. And those two go together. Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church, the study of the church, and Christology is the study of Christ. The two go together because the church is the bride of Christ. So many of the things that we learn and confess about Jesus, we also learn and confess about the church, for we are the bride of Christ and our identity is found in him. Okay. So, I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of House of the Lord. I'd like to start at the end of the Sermon on the Mount first today. Verse 24. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does them, uh, does not do them uh, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Kathy, can you lower the blinds for a brother whose eyes are tormented? Is that better? Okay. Okay. and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. That's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Now why begin here? I begin here because of that question I put to you, which is a quotation from the Psalms. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. How many of you have heard this passage before? whoever hears these words of mine, I'll liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. You've heard that, right? And how many of you primarily have thought about that passage as the Larson house, you know, Kevin and Sherry built their home on the rock, Christ and his word. Now that would not be a a bad application, would it? However, how many of you have not thought about this house as being the church? When you hear "house," I don't think you think of the church. Okay, what's that? Oh, you did not. Don't lie to me. You thought when you heard these sayings, every man are. Our congregation has to be built upon the rock which is Christ. We, we Most people think it,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Don't ruin the application here, would you? What did you have for breakfast yesterday? Oh,
1: spaghetti. Bran Bran flakes?
0: Brand flakes? Yeah. Do you have that every day? Yeah. Okay, well, let's know. <laughs> It's no great achievement than to remember it. It's when you have bran flakes every day and you don't remember. And that's when we're free. Okay. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Or I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints. Here's this Lovely thing. On the one hand, the church is all over the world. So, if we wanted to say the whole Christian church on earth, you know, you think of Christians, baptized Christians gathered around word and sacrament all over the world. On the other hand, everything that the Bible teaches about the church we can say about every congregation. So, when we confess our faith in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we are confessing something about that assembly of Christians that gathers together on a Sunday morning around the Lord's preaching and the Lord's sacrament. To put it another way, there's nothing missing. Our Lord is there, and he is in communion with his bride, the church, of which you and I are members. Okay. So everything that we say about the church and confess about the church and learn about the church from the scriptures, we are to confess about our local congregation. This is the Holy Christian Church. It is the communion of saints. It doesn't mean we're not connected with other brothers and sisters around the world. We are. But it's not as if we are sort of like just a part of the church or a fragment. okay? And I'd like you to consider that. So, in Jesus' words here, um, he is talking about the church, Catholic on the grand scale, but he's talking about the church, every household of the church, locally, you might say. And what is the foundation for the church? Whether you're talking about the Holy Catholic Church, you know, scattered across the oceans and the world over. Or the local congregation? Christ's Word. Pretty simple. So think about our own congregation. The Word is preached 7.45, 10.30 on Sunday morning. The Word is taught 9.15 Sunday morning. The Word is carried out into the congregation in the congregation at prayer, daily readings of the Word, daily praying of the Word in the Psalter, daily confessing of the Word in the Catechism, and singing of the Word in the hymnody. On uh, on Tuesday, there's, there's Daily Chapel Monday through Friday in the Word that reflects and draws from the diet in the congregation at prayer that forms a culture around the Word of God. There's Tuesday after-school catechesis as well as academy catechesis, Tuesday and Thursday. There's Wednesday night, divine service. Thursday, Holy Communion, Matins as part of Daily Chapel, Coffee Break, Bible Study, so forth. Why is that? because there is no lifeblood for the church. The church doesn't exist. Nor is faith created or sustained in a world of darkness apart from the Word. Now, in another gospel, Luke chapter 10, with Mary and Martha, Jesus calls this the one thing needful. In the Sermon on the Mount, he calls this, his word, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them is likened unto the wise man who built his house upon the rock. So the word gives us the rock. And in the Psalter, the rock of our salvation is Christ. And later on in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 16 he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's in Matthew chapter 16. And what he says to Peter there, thou art Peter, Simon thou art Peter, you are the rock and upon this rock, the confession of the word, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against against it. That's in Matthew chapter 16, if you wanted to. It's on page 31, where, verse 16, Simon Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's certainly what is confessed in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, the son of Jonah. Remember, Jonah was thrown into the sea and then vomited up on the third day a picture of the death and resurrection. That's at the heart of the confession of God's word. So flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, (coughs) Petros, which is masculine, rock, and on this rock, Petra, which is in the feminine case, referring to the confession of the word, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So what is depicted as the house at the end of chapter 7 is now called the church here in uh, chapter 16. And then I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Every house needs keys to get in the house and open the house and lock the house. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that Jesus was the Christ till he had risen from the dead. Okay, so I wanted, and we'll do this more as we progress through Matthew. We'll reach back. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount when he said this? Okay, but what I want you to see in this uh, chapter 7 is the house as a reference to church. And what is the church but the assembly, the congregation of baptized believers in Christ, among whom the gospel is preached and the sacraments are administered? Okay. Comment? All right, now, if you will pick up with verse 15. This is where we left off last week. Beware of false prophets. Now, what does a prophet do? He speaks forth the word of God. That's what the, the biblical definition of prophet. One who speaks forth the word of God. Again, one who speaks forth the word of God, which means a false prophet is one who what? Not only doesn't speak the Word of God, but he, the lies. he contradicts the Word, he speaks lies, he deceives, he twists the Word, he mutilates the Word. Prophets were classic preachers. What were prophets? Classic. Yes, they preached law and gospel. You look at the Old Testament. Moses, the preeminent prophet, called the people to repentance and called them to faith in the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He called them to repentance for their stiff-necked hardness of heart and he called them to faith in the promise. Every prophet did the same thing. Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, were uh, were there Isaiah, Jeremiah, were there... Predictive elements in their prophesying? Yes, but much, much more did they call to repentance, preach the law for the sake of faith, and proclaim the promises of forgiveness to the penitent. So the, the purpose of calling to the repentance was to bring about repentance, and so that forgiveness could be proclaimed, and restoration. Even in the period of the judges, the judges acted much like prophets as well as they used the Torah of Moses to call the congregation of Israel to repentance. And this cycle went over and over and over again. So that's what a prophet does. But a false prophet not only speaks lies, contradicts the word of God, but in contrast to a true prophet, to whom does the true prophet call us to rely? Christ, Christ and his word for salvation. The false prophet calls us to rely upon whom, Verla? Ourself. Ourself. That's right. So the works righteous character, the Pharisees, were false prophets. The scribes, so many of them at Jesus' time, were false prophets. Because they manipulated the word, they mutilated the word, and in so doing, they directed faith upon self, human works. What's interesting about those false prophets, were they within, or were they on the inside or on the outside of the organized church? They were on the inside. As they are today. As they are today. It doesn't mean that there aren't false prophets outside. But the realization that there, are true, that there are false prophets within the visible, organized structure of the church where baptized Christians gather is extremely important. Otherwise, we are tempted to think that every preacher is faithful. Uh, for us as Lutherans, in our ecclesiology... This is a hard thing for people to grasp. Because you want an ecclesiology. An ecclesiology is the structure of the church, too, in a lot of ways. So, some churches have an ecclesiology, a doctrine of the church, where it's built upon a hierarchy. So, with all due respect, Connie, <laughs> papacy, cardinals, bishops, and so forth. And that, that quote, <coughs> guarantees the faithfulness of the church. Some some ecclesiologies are congregationally based. And a lot of people mistakenly think that the Lutheran ecclesiology is congregational. It's actually not. But the congregations collectively will do the right thing. Will know the right thing. If you look just historically at the Old Testament, when did the congregation ever do the right thing? (laughs) And if you want to base it on hierarchy, look at the kings of the Old Testament, who in our study of the Old Testament, they were like the bishops. I mean, every one of them erred. Now, for us as Lutherans, the ecclesiology... Of the church is based upon the confession of the Word of God. And that's what Jesus says to Peter in that you are Peter, Petros, and upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. It's a confession of the church, a confession of the truth. So the truth of God's Word becomes the foundation. Did Moses as a person, always say the right thing? He didn't. Did the Apostle Peter, the first pope, always say the right thing? He did not. In fact, right after the great confession, you are Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and now I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. God forbid it shouldn't happen! To which Jesus then says, get behind me, Satan. So, he doesn't say the right thing. Human beings err. One of the themes of the Reformation is councils err. So it's a messy thing in a certain sense that the church is always in a struggle to hold on to the confession of the truth or the confession of the Word of God. But that is the lifeblood of the church. It's not in a hierarchy, it's not in congregational polity, it's not in a blending of the two together. And that's why studying the word, confessing the truth, and now this is where Lutherans sometimes think they're Protestants, and we are not. We are not Protestants. Okay, Connie? Because a Protestant, do you know what a Protestant is, Connie? How would you define that? A Protestant is someone who rejects. Can you guess? Anybody? Uh, it, that's too broad to say rejects authority. Um, tradition. History. You've got to know your history, Verla but you know your family history and that's pretty important for your identity and also so that you don't what repeat the history right and make the same mistakes
1: being the youngest child i
0: of- yeah so the reformation did teach sola scriptura scripture alone as authority But that has caused many a Lutheran to say, therefore, church history and tradition and liturgy has nothing to teach us, which is false. It would be like me saying, Scripture alone, but my mother and the history of the Warful family has nothing to teach me. Well, that would be Wrong. wrong. It would be arrogant. It doesn't mean that that history trumps the Word of God, but Christians are shaped by the Word of God and the struggles and experiences down through the history of their lives, of the church, and they have something to teach us. The liturgy and the hymnody of the church is part of the history, the tradition shaped by the Word of God. Okay? So, a Protestant says, Nope! Tradition means nothing. Church history means nothing. We go back to the apostles. And then you're destined to make the same mistakes. Here's something that's part of church history and tradition. The Nicene Creed, which was born out of an intense struggle to maintain, Hey, You people who deny that Jesus is God, he is God. God of God, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. That confession of the truth of God's word was born out of an intense struggle, wrestling with the word of God in the face of opposition to the truth from false prophets. Okay? So, It's true, scripture alone is the authority, but that does not mean that the church's confession down through the ages and how she has struggled with that doesn't inform and have something to teach us. It does. In fact, the Augsburg Confession of 1530 repeatedly asserts this is not a new faith. This is what the apostles have taught and what the church fathers have taught, and what the church Catholic has always confessed. Okay? So I remember Dr. Bill Weinrich teaching medieval history, church history at the seminary, made the emphatic point to us, this is your church history. And his point was, The church didn't begin at 1517 with the posting of the 95 Theses. That the church of 1100 is our church history. The church of 600 is ours. The Latin fathers are ours. Ambrose, who wrote these wonderful hymns that we sing in the Lutheran hymnal, he's our church father And they have something to teach us. Okay? All right, so maybe you consider that a digression, but um, it's an important one because hopefully it instills a bit of humility. Not that we would ever want to be humble about anything. So beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. Now, what is the point of comparison? Sheep's clothing. There's a, of, there's a couple of points of comparison you can make here. Sheep's clothing. John? Pastors are shepherds. Pastors are shepherds? Yes.
2: ooh hoo hoo, 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 hoo.
0: <laughs> So some of these false prophets might be... Uh, Could be... Could be, could be pastors. Yeah. Oh my goodness gracious, balls of fire. Okay. Make another connection. They seem non-threatening, but they really are. They, they seem but they really are. Uh, that they're sheep, you know, the congregation is called the flock, so they appear to be Christians. And they may not be. Okay. They may be wolves. Demons, not Christians. So your sister knows that the lifestyle of the pastor pastor of the Methodist church is not what it should be. Honest with her. So this is a female pastor. Okay. And um so
1: I just said I said that person should not be in the ministry because people are leaving the church and
0: they're offended by her and what is she doing? What what was this lifestyle?
1: Well, the lifestyle is that she has a man living with her
0: and she's not married. So it's the It's the woman at the well scenario. You have five husbands and the man you have now is not yours.
1: Social gospel. Yeah, and so my sister is kind of caught in the middle and um, they're going to people's homes to find out why they're not attending church anymore. And they're finding out things, but they're not doing anything. Yeah.
0: Well, let's come, let's come back to the, to the text here then under this uh, assertion. If you do not hear the word of Christ in the church, you will not hear it anywhere. The church engages oftentimes in a lot of activities. I mean, we just had, we have the last fish fry of Lent coming up, but that's not the essence of the church, not by a long shot. In fact, it's not, it's not part of the essence of the church at all. Or the goods and services auction, you know, record, record income, 74000 plus, biggest <laughs> ever. That is nothing of the essence of the church. It doesn't mean that we can't do some of those things, but the essence of the church, what constitutes her is what creates her, And what sustains her, which is the word and the sacraments of Christ, and even with the sacraments of Christ, it's not the water indeed that does it, but the word of God in and with the water. Or the Lord's Supper, it's not the bodily eating and drinking, but the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. That's why the culture of catechesis here is so strongly emphasized because we will be gobbled up by wolves in sheep's clothing without it. And even then, even with it, it's, there's still threats from our own weaknesses within and without. Now, going back to what I talked about with ecclesiology, in other words, what, what guarantees the health of the church? You know, is it, is it an a ecclesiastical hierarchy? And I'm not against hierarchy. You know, the the, uh, Lutheran churches, most Lutheran churches are hierarchical. Did you know that? Especially uh, the European ones. Um, Ours is more congregationally based in its polity. The polities can ebb and flow. They can change. There's no divinely mandated polity. But what is mandated is the foundation of the Word of God. Going back to the idea of the Confession, Is being that which governs the confession of the word. This is the importance of the catechism. It's not my catechism, it's not even Martin Luther's catechism. It's the catechism of the Church Catholic, the Ten Commandments, the Creed, the Our Father, the Texts on Baptism, and the, and the Holy Supper. I didn't invent those. Luther didn't invent those. Those are God's words, they're their foundational framework. Okay. So this is one of the reasons why catechesis is supposed to be objective in going back to the word, to the objective word in those key texts. Because it enables you to discern who the true prophets are from the false prophets. As I sometimes quip, I have never had an original thought in my life. What's the point? The point is that what is preached and taught is what has been preached and taught before. It's anchored in the prophetic and apostolic scriptures. I remember hearing Dr. Preuss um, in particular, and then there were others. If you, if you as, a, as a pastor, you know, if you think you've discovered some new doctrine or you have something that you want to preach that you have never encountered anywhere else, don't preach that because it is likely to be false. Which goes back to the idea that we are informed by our fathers before us. Alright, so you will know them by their fruits. So inwardly they're ravenous wolves. so they devour the flock. Which means they devour what? Faith, thank you. You will know them by their fruits. So what are the fruits of a true prophet? If you'll know the false prophets, by their destruction of faith, what is, what would be the fruit of? That's right. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes? Answer? No. No. Or figs from thistles? No. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. So, the good fruit is the confession of the truth and the faith, the repentant faith that that fruit produces. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Now, the the fruit of the word of God, only the pure word of God can create faith. God does not work through false teaching to create faith. So, if you ingest some food that has a little bit of poison in it, maybe you won't die immediately from the poison, you'll just get sick. But that poison is not going to help you live. So, also, the Word of God alone, the pure Word of God, is what creates faith. Does that mean that every preacher is always, 100% of the time, always preaching the pure Word? Maybe not, but to the extent that there's faith, it's because of the pure word. It's not because of false doctrine. That's why contending for the truth is so important, because only the truth creates and sustains faith. False doctrine fights against faith. So a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. False doctrine cannot produce faith. It can't do it. Well, what's a little bit of false doctrine? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's an image of divine judgment. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. And the fruits are repentance and faith in Christ. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... Remember David Koresh? Mm-hmm. Do you remember um, Jim, Jones? Mm-hmm. Jim Jones? Yeah. We're dating ourselves, Larry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, don't don't you, yeah. That's That's where the expression came from, I guess, didn't it? <laughs> Lord, Lord. So, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. What is the will then being spoken of in this context of false prophets and true prophets and the house coming up being built upon the rock? Yeah, it's the preaching of the truth. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Well, if you prophesy in the name of Jesus, but it's false Prophecy, it doesn't matter whose name you invoke. How many times in the Old Testament, you think about King Saul, for example. He he goes to the witch at Endor to try to conjure up Samuel to give him a message on what he should do. And he tells that, well, first the witch says, well, Saul has forbidden us to consult with mediums. And Saul is there, disguised. And he says, I swear by the name of the Lord, no harm will come to you. You don't have the authority to do that. But that's what they did. So, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, which is anything that is contrary to and that opposes the word of Christ doesn't matter what show you put on if it's contrary to the word of Christ I don't know you so for Jesus blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it that's Luke chapter 11:28 John's Gospel, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you are my disciples indeed and you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Or here in Matthew's Gospel, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now, everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not, and it fell. And great was its fall. So this imagery of rock and sand. Who is the rock? Christ that's what His Word gives to us. So there is an inseparable connection between Christ and the Word of God. We know of no Jesus except that Jesus who comes to us by the Word. It's not like you can have Jesus apart from the Word. It's impossible, okay? So to hear the word is to hear Christ and to receive Christ who is the rock of your salvation, the foundation then for the church, the household of faith. And to not have the word then means you don't have Christ and the church, whatever it's called, is built upon sand and then, you know, think about now rain here. The rains came down. What great Bible story has lots of rain in it? The flood, yeah. The the, the flood, the torrent of divine judgment and so forth, cannot uh, be withstood unless your house is built upon the rock, which is Christ and His Word, which aren't two different things, but Christ, that is to say, His Word. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that he the people were astonished at his teaching. He taught as those having authority and not as the scribes. And I'm constrained to remind you yet again of do not think I came to destroy the law and the prophets the old testament scriptures but to fulfill. So Jesus' words proclaim the fulfillment of the old testament scriptures the old testament word. So Jesus argues for, going back to the discussion about you know, history and tradition here within the biblical narrative itself, he argues with continuity with the Old Testament. So what Moses and the prophets wrote are fulfilled in Jesus. I came to fulfill them, not to destroy them. Okay. All right, um, so far the Sermon on the Mount. Questions or comments? Berry. You've got that. You, you added highlights to your beard, too. Okay. Um, yep. I, I just wanted to um, go back to the woman who is
2: a pastor, um, because practices teach. I mean, that
0: already Going back to the, to the woman pastor, yes. Practices, practices teach, correct. So that right there makes her wolf in clothing. Yeah, that right there makes her a wolf in sheep's clothing, because her very claim to the office is a false claim. That's correct. What's interesting to me with respect to the women's ordination question is there is no such thing as a conservative confessional denomination that ordains women. It doesn't exist. The one follows the other. Every aberrant Christian practice, um, that's simply a sign of it, okay? So you have Methodist and Presbyterian churches blessing same-sex unions, uh, blessing homosexual clergy, blessing abortion on demand, uh, condoning living together outside of the bonds of holy wedlock. And the list goes on and on and on. (coughs) There's no such thing as uh, confessing the inerrancy of Scripture in those cases. Why? Because you have to, you can ordain women if you want, but you can't claim that the Bible endorses it. It does not. Okay. So you can do all kinds of things, but don't claim credit for the Bible. And this is why... Uh, For example, I have mentioned this many times before, liberal theologians have to find ways to undermine the uh, historicity of the scriptural witness. We can't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually writing the Gospels about things that they claim that they have witnessed because if if we allow them to actually be the authors who are testifying to the miracles, the virgin birth, and the resurrection of the Son of God, then that would would give evidence that it's actually true. So we've we've got to make somebody else the author of those after the fact it's collusion that then they use the name of Matthew or John or Luke to sort of authenticate their message when really they were duping you all along. That's, 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 that's what masquerades as scholarship today. It's why in the St. Peter option, 2 Peter, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And they were willing to die for that. Now some people are willing to die if they're mentally ill. But not all of the apostles were mentally ill. Many pastors are mentally ill, but not all of the apostles were. Okay. Doreen? Sometimes Jesus um, well, he tells the apostles at times when they observe something that yep. shows his, you know, that he is the Son of God. And not to tell Don't tell anybody. Well, I, th- I think that's part of it, but I think more to the point, Dr. Scare in this video on women's ordination says, uh, he makes the point, not every man is qualified to be a pastor. Just because, you're, so just because we only ordain men in the church Catholic does not mean that every man is qualified. And so that's the ecclesiastical situation. They weren't ready they weren't ready until after his resurrection to go out. Look at how they mucked things up before, before then. Polly. I, I have not
1: heard of Dr. Spears' video. On-
0: it's it's um, it's not his video, but he's on a video that John made about women's ordination. John Bender, oh, okay. in in high school, made a video, and he's on. You, you weren't here at the beginning when we referred to that. You talk to me or, or Sherry or, because the CCA has it available. Okay. I think $5, $5 or something like that. Yeah. I think it is. Okay. Now my question that I put to you at the beginning. What have been among your favorite parts of the Sermon on the Mount and Why? favorite verse or passage or particular insight that has been helpful to you to this point that you learned over these weeks. See, I gave you that assignment at the beginning of class so that maybe someone would have something to offer in these last five minutes. And of course, I never... I never uh, put out a challenge for which I don't also have an answer. Yes, Sharon.
1: My favorite one, and it's been that way for all my life, is the do not worry.
0: Your favorite one, and it's been Um, that all of your life, Matthew chapter uh, 6, verse 25, Mm -hmm. I say to you, do not worry about your husband, I mean your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Indeed it is. And why?
1: Well, I had a mother who worried about everything. And I, I noticed that that was just, it just made her miserable.
0: It made her miserable. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Indeed it does. <laughs> okay. Other testimony? This, this is where I give you the one rare opportunity. What does this mean to me? <laughs> no one else is going to... Verla. The lamp of the body, you never thought about it as being what you yeah, trust in. I remember my mom always saying she could tell when we were sitting
1: by our eyes. So I was just thinking you can kind of see if someone's troubled just looking at their eyes, but there's so much more to it than just physical.
0: Yeah, the, the eye and the ear are used in the Sermon on the Mountain elsewhere in Scripture as organs mm-hmm. of faith. You know, what you hear, to hear is to believe, to see is to, to believe, Okay. Others, Melinda. Surely you must. Uh
1: there's a couple of these that i always worked with. Um, one is fasting to be seen by God, and another one is the narrow
0: way. Fasting to be seen by God and the narrow way. Okay. Why?
1: Why? You know why? <laughs> uh,
0: I guess quiet prayer is, is the one that I've always felt was. Okay. So I have a tendency to go to my there, There's a strong, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, there is a strong emphasis on the quiet prayer of the believer with the Lord. So do we practice corporate prayer or private prayer? The answer is yes. You know? and, and so the forgiving righteousness is what faith trusts in and out of that faith of every Christian, we cry out to God in prayer or we practice self-denial not to be seen but to draw nearer to the one who is our life and salvation. Okay. Oops. Others? Polly, what's your No? I get well actually um,
1: the clarifications that you gave last week about pearls before swine um, and also on asking what shall you. I mean that that one was
0: really a, a revelation. And an enlighten, okay, revelation. Pearls before swine, the insight about that with respect to the Lord's Supper. Right for the penitent and then ask and you will receive, you know, for those promises of salvation. Okay, good. Um, all right, for, for me, of course, this, um, I, I've used the phrase, it comes from Dr. Scare, in his attempt to catechize on this, the forgiving righteousness, this greater righteousness that, that permeates the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, Seen then in Matthew chapter 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And that righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. So among the reasons that that is significant for me is um, my teacher, Dr. Scare, again, would say some Lutherans think that the justification of the sinner, where we're declared righteous, by grace alone through faith alone is only found in St. Paul. And he objects to that. So said, this is Jesus teaching. I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. So, in other words, his point is some Lutherans think we would never would have known anything about justification if it hadn't been for the Apostle Paul, Paul right. okay. when Jesus teaches justification that we are declared righteous for Christ's sake, the like, forgiving righteousness.
1: It's like not finding Jesus in the Old Testament.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like not finding Jesus in the Old Testament. And then my, my most favorite of all is related, which are the Beatitudes themselves. Because the Beatitudes are both descriptions of Jesus and what you and I, by the grace of God through faith in Christ, share in. We share in that blessedness that is ours in Christ by faith that the Sermon on the Mount articulates. And the climax then comes at the end with, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which is why Christians are persecuted because More than anything else, we believe that we are justified by what Christ has done. We are forgiven, not by our works, but by what Christ has done. That's the first sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. It's about the justification of the sinner before God. And we saw it already there in chapter 1. You'll call his name Jesus. Not because you will save your people from your sins, but because he will save his people from their sins. And at Jesus' baptism, permit it to fulfill all righteousness. Okay? So that the, the placement and the accent on the righteousness of Christ, which is ours by faith in the Sermon on the Mount, and indeed the entire gospel, is um, key for me. Okay. So, in two weeks, we will resume, uh, or I guess it would be like three weeks, technically, right? Uh, With chapter 8. Ten signs of Moses in miracles established Christ in his office. The cleansing of the leper, and etc., etc. So, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Amen.